is uh, do I love my spouse? And um, I will share with you that uh, after every class, I go upstairs to get scored by my dear friend Sherry. And uh, one of the things Sherry always mentions to me is that sometimes we need to divide one lecture into two or three because it's sometimes it's just much. So I actually uh, divided this uh, lecture into two. It's going to be, uh, this is part A and next week will be part B. Next month, I'm sorry, will be part B. It's <laughs> once a month. <laughs> but the question over here is, do I love my spouse? And the subtitle was, A Brave and Daring Journey into the Question. I want to first define what the word brave and daring means. Because normally such a question, do I love my spouse, people don't really want to go to that question. Because it is brave and daring, because you always face the chance of coming up with the answer no. And then if you do come up with that answer no, you need to define that word no. Does it mean that I used to be and I am no more, or I feel that my spouse is that way towards me? And then you also have sometimes come to term, and unfortunately a lot of times when I do marriage counseling, which is already way too late into the uh, situation, so it becomes uh, the conversation, oh, uh, I never loved her, she never loved me, and so forth and so on. So at that point it gets very difficult, but that's the point where if you're going to ask this question, do I love my spouse, then you're going to have to be able to face the truth no matter what it is. And the truth sometimes isn't pleasant, and therefore we go into denial. And let's just not go there. You know, until we don't fight that battle that hasn't been lost, let's just not do it. And then the pain of, if the answer is no, becomes a question of, okay, now I'm in realization, I'm in a loveless marriage, and now becomes another set of questions. What do I do now? Do I step out? Do I stay? Are there kids involved? Are there not kids involved? And if I do decide to stay, what are my choices? Do I accept that that's what it is? You know, I'm just going to have a marriage and respectful, but... I don't love. Or can I hope that you know something, I identify that somewhere along in this relationship either I've come to take for granted or I just stop focusing, stop putting in an effort, stop feeding the fire and maybe now that I've realized that I can work on it. Maybe there still is hope to bring love back into my marriage. And all these questions are very difficult questions. The difficult question of coming to realization, to be able to really ask yourself, and I want to focus again on one thing, even though I may have spoken now on both sides of the coin, I specifically am asking the title, Do I Love My Spouse? This conversation is not about whether you are going to think if your spouse loves you or not. Generally speaking, that's a dangerous area, because when we start imposing our thoughts that we think the other thinks upon me, we're entering into a very dangerous neighborhood. That you need to have open communication. Who will tell you if your spouse loves you or not is your spouse, not you to your spouse. You can say, I feel unloved, and that would have to be another discussion with your spouse. Why? But that's not tonight, today's question. Today's question is not whether your spouse loves you because that you don't need to be so brave to go ahead and point fingers at what your spouse feels about you. It is brave and daring to be able to question yourself what you feel about your spouse. So really please focus that today do not start transferring anything that I'm saying today into, oh, is that what my spouse thinks about me? Because if you are doing that, you're wasting your time. There is nothing constructive in that conversation. The real focus of today is, do I love my spouse? That's the question here to discuss. If we're going to be brave and daring about it, that's the question we need to discuss. And again, the question of being brave, why does it take to be brave? Because this is a relationship where if you find out that the answer is no, there's a deep emptiness, a loneliness that comes with it, 
and then there's decisions, there's thoughts to be made. Most likely you're going to experience a big down before you can even get back up. You start evaluating, it's been many years, what happened. You start going back to the old-fashioned feelings you had when you were teenagers. and it, It's not an easy journey. And yet, nevertheless, I'm going to tell you that that's not what I mean when I wrote a brave and daring journey. The brave and daring journey here that I am referring to, which we're soon going to talk about, is not the question whether do I find out that no, I'm in a marriage with someone I don't love. That's, that is brave and daring, but that's not what we're talking about right here, right now. What do I mean by brave and daring? The brave and daring I refer to, I want to tell you what the difference between psychology and Hasidus is. Because I need to emphasize that today we are not in a psychology session or a psychology lecture. We're here studying Torah and more specifically Hasidus. What is the difference between psychology and Hasidus? Because it seems to be we're talking about things that could go under the title of psychology. So I want to share with you an interesting joke I heard about psychology. No, I, uh, I actually used to make jokes about psychologists and psychology a lot, a lot more often, but today I've actually come to respect and have a very dear friend of psychologists. We don't make those jokes. But I want to tell you a, a respectful joke. This guy goes to the bar, and every single week, it's Thursday night, and he had this mishigas. After he finished the drink, instead of putting the glass down, he would throw it. Guy was a good customer, guy looked away once, twice, and then he tells him, listen, you know, you need to get help or don't come back here. You just can't keep on drinking your drink and throw your glass. Six months, the guy doesn't come back. Comes back, guy looks at him, no, yeah, went, all great. Takes the drink, finishes the drink, and throws the glass. <laughs> guy tells him, I don't get it. I thought you told me you went for therapy. Or says, oh yeah, I don't feel bad about it no more. I don't feel guilty, no shame. I'm okay with it. <laughs> a psychology point of view is a whole different perspective. I want to share with you what Hasidus' perspective is. From a Hasidus perspective, whenever you're dealing with a human being, regardless of what faults, whether it be doing bad things or not doing the right things, the Hasidic perspective is that every time you look at a Jew, you're looking at a godly creation. You look at a human being, you're looking at a moral creation. By definition, the essence of the Jew is godly, the essence of the human being is moral. Next step, when you talk about potential, you're talking about behavior. Remember, I didn't say the essence is potentially good. I said the essence is good. But, you know, if many people are in a relationship that they have to unfortunately get out of because the spouse is, in essence, good, but he acts like a jerk, sorry for the word. So it's very nice that he's a good essence, but you can't stay in an abusive relationship with someone that has a good heart, but he just doesn't know how to do that. So we're talking about besides the essence of the person is good, from Hasidus' perspective, there's always the potential of the person's performance being good. So you're looking at two things. A person who essentially is a creation of God. God is good. God's creations are essentially good. <coughs> On top of that, every single person has the potential to perform good. Now when you have that situation, that perspective, the next question where the real struggle is, the essence is good, the potential of performance is good, and now we have to look at the actual performance. The actual performance is lacking, if that be the case. And that is the struggle of Hasidus, to see how good plus good can equal bad. If you're essentially good, and your performance in potential is good, why in actuality aren't we doing, performing good? From that perspective, Hasidus will always approach the situation 
from saying this person's good, this person potentially will be physically, tangibly performing good deeds. What I need to understand is where is the cutoff, where is the blockage, where is the curtain, where is the locked door, where is the shut window between the potential of performance and the actual performance. That is the struggle between the mind and the heart. That is the struggle that Tanya has. Tanya tells you that you are in essence a Benini. In potential you could always, in every single struggle between good and bad, you can always perform like a Benini and then you shut the book and you do what you weren't supposed to do. So the struggle of Tanya is, how do I get that potential? The fact that I'm essentially good knows that I'm in the ballpark. Not only that, I have potential to actually do good things, so I'm at that. Now how do I learn to take a swing, connect, and make a hit? <coughs> That's the struggle of Hasidus. So it's a whole different approach. From that perspective, the question here today, do I love my spouse? Right now here, as we sit around by a Hasidus class, the answer is yes. In essence, yes. In potential, yes. Now, we need to be brave and daring to say that if in essence I love my spouse, potential performance, the tangible emotion of my heart, the potential of that is I love my spouse, then I'm left with a question. Where is the actual, physical, tangible feeling, emotion of love? Why is that brave and daring? Because in this arena, to be able to say, no, I don't love my spouse, would be taking a quick exit out of the journey. To be able to say that this is the fact, this is my spouse, this is the other half of my soul. So in essence, obviously I love my whole soul. One half loves the other half. In potential, I can feel that love. So now the struggle is to look in the mirror and say, okay, in essence I love, in potential I love, where is the tangible feeling in my heart of love for my spouse? That becomes very brave and daring to have to look yourself in the eye and say that the answer is yes, and anything less than that is somewhere I need to look deeper into my eyes and question why. So what I'm actually saying over here is that I am suggesting that the answer no is unacceptable only because it's a cop-out of what you already have and are inside. The question really is, why? Why don't I tangibly feel that love? And obviously I'm not suggesting we all don't feel it. But if that be the struggle, or at every relationship, you know, I always tell people, most cardiologists don't like flat lines. You want it to go up and down. So your relationship, you don't want a flat line. If you have a flat line, it's dead. Even though the flat line may be on top of the chart, that's not good. It needs to be up and down. It needs to pump in and out, in and out. In a relationship, there's a give and take. Give and take not just what you do for me and what I do for you, but how I complete you and how you complete me. You know, that's the bottom line. The bottom line is, and I spoke about this in the show one time, that no one is straight. Everyone has faults which is in and virtues which come out. The name of the game is if you and your spouse can fit perfectly. If you can put your virtue where their faults are, and they can put their virtues where your faults are, so you have in and out, it's a perfect fit. So the question is not whether there's a flat line there. But the real question is that why and how am I supposed to bring out the essence of love that two half and souls have for each other, the potential of actually feeling it and acting upon it, and then the actual feeling that we all know there is nothing more amazing. Forget about feeling love. Most of us are always struggling and complaining we don't feel love. I will tell you from everything I've studied, the human need to love is much greater than the human need to feel love. And that's why 
it was precisely the question do I love and not do I feel love that could have been a whole different lecture we're talking about the real necessity of the human heart is to be able to love the feeling love I personally believe is secondary so the real question here is if I don't love remember if you don't feel love it's very easy to blame the other if you're not loving well we can very easily say I don't love because he did this to me and did that to me but the Dios is more on you you need to be able to love more than that you need to take the love that already exists on the essence level of your soul on the potential level in your soul and make it real with that being said the real interesting question here is that it seems to be God in his infinite sense of humor because everything about him is infinite including his sense of humor we need to understand what exactly he did took a male took a female and told them to become one from a real serious step back point of view forget about hormones and everything else if you really just look at it the two beings doesn't seem to make sense that they would work as one with all fair respect the male in his infrastructure the woman in her infrastructure it doesn't seem likely that these two are perfect partners and yes I did say the virtue and the faults fit but if we just look at it practically a man's approach a woman's approach a man's necessities a woman's necessities it seems to be that it was some divine humor to create Adam and Eve and tell them and now you shall become one and therefore if we go ahead and we search what is the potential what is the essence of two half a soul normally when you say two halves we usually mean they're identical when you say oh those two are they're like two halves what you really mean is they're identical to each other what we mean here is quite the contrary they're not identical they complete each other and if they were identical they wouldn't complete each other I wouldn't need a woman in my life if I already had everything that a woman has so what makes my wife my completion is the fact that I am male and she is female male and females are opposites and they complete each other and here I share with you something very interesting most of you know the story that Adam was created and then Adam was put to sleep and God got to play surgeon took out a rib and created Eve that's the way you know the story interesting enough that's not the way our stages tell the story the word tzela which you know to be as rib actually is interpreted as side our stages say God created male and female as one Adam was actually Adam and Eve together what God did was God separated Adam and Eve into two so when God said let us create mankind God didn't create a male and then later as an afterthought said let's create female God actually created Adam as male and female together two sides then God says it is not good for man to be alone so he gives him a wife how did he give him a wife he separated that one being which was male and female together he separated them now into two beings male and female and now there will be two that will get married and become one an interesting topic in itself why if Adam had Eve as one being he was lonely and yet when Eve was separated from Adam and then they fell in love and got married they're no more lonely an interesting topic we need to explore but that is what our stages says Adam and Eve was one God separated them and then they became man and wife something more interesting even after they were separated there still exists in each one both the male and the female both male and female and I explain myself God tells the angels let us create mankind in our image and in our likeness there's a problem 
ABCs of Judaism. God has no image. So what does God mean when God tells the angels, let us create mankind in our image? The simple Kabbalistic explanation to that is that from the infinite light to the finite creation, there is something called the tenth spirit. People who dabbled with Tanya at all, chapter 3 already, and we're going to talk a little bit about chapter 3. Ten Spirot. Have you heard? You've come across the Ten Spirot? I mean, you've been here a lot. The Ten Spirot is what we call in that verse the image, the likeness. The soul of man, when I say man, I mean mankind, man and woman. The soul of man was created to reflect those Ten Spirot. And that is why your soul is made up of ten kochot. The infrastructure of the soul is made up of ten faculties. It actually reflects itself in your physical body. Your brain is made up of three lobes, and that is because the ten spheroth break into two. Three intellects, seven emotions. You have the right side of the brain represents wisdom, the left side of the brain represents understanding and the brain stem represents that knowledge. Not that we're going to get into this right now, we've done this once before, but just to show you how really the reflection is, you know that artists, they say that most artists are lefties. Because we know from stroke victims unfortunately, the right side of the brain controls the left side of the body. The right side of the brain represents wisdom. Wisdom is artistic, it's liberal, it's looking for the inner life. The left side of the brain, which represents the right side of your body, is actually understanding which is analytical. You will find in children, in kindergarten, their right side of the brain is much more dominant than the left side of the brain. They talk in pictures and art more freely than in analytical sentences. We in our education system, and yes, I always do this when I get up to this point, I just let out my frustration. For some reason, at a very young age, we teach our kids to squash the free-spirited talent of the right side of the brain, and what's going to get you in life, where you're going to make your money is, on the left side of your brain. You need to know numbers, datas, become lifeless, become robotic, just accept it, move into it, and that's it. <laughs> and yes, I'm being extreme because of my own frustrations, but be it as it may. <laughs> I, I always uh, joke around, I'm looking for a nocturnal shul. <laughs> but anyway, be that the case, the actual manifestation of the tenth spirit is in your soul, which reflects into your body, it reflects into your psychological infrastructure. Now let's discuss this. The ten faculties break into two groups. Three intellects, seven emotions. Each one of those two groups, categories, carry within them both the masculine and the feminine. Wisdom represents masculine, understanding represents feminine. And just, if I was going to quote you a proof of that, it says, Bina yetera nitna isha. An extra measure of understanding was given to the woman. If you want to just go into different perspectives, just physically, in the creation of a child, the man gives over DNA, which is wisdom, everything and nothing in one shot. The woman in nine months is going to dissect that and create a very complex, perfect child with all the details which was hidden in the DNA. You talk about the five books of Moses, that's masculine. Talk about the oral law, that's feminine. The masculine is in one sentence, is hidden there, everything you understand, nothing. And then comes the woman in the oral law, which will dissect all the details and give you a creation complete. The man is represented in a dot, the woman is represented in a three-dimensional box. Wisdom, understanding. In your emotions, you have the same thing. The first six days of the week, which was a reflection of the first six emotions, are masculine. What day of the week is feminine? Shabbat. Malchut. So again, in the emotions, you have masculine and feminine. The consummation of the masculine and the feminine is what bears offsprings. What that will mean to us right now, 
the masculine side of the brain, the feminine side of the brain connect, not only do you get the inner picture, you understand all the details, and we're going to soon discuss the role of that. The job of that, the brainstem is to take the information from here and here, make it one, and bring it down to the heart, create emotions. So, you have literally in all your Kabbalah books, you'll see those pictures and unfortunately they're misrepresented, but you have always in Kabbalah the concept of masculine, feminine, consummation, bring down new levels of divinity. What it means to us practically is, you study Torah, you understand Torah, you give birth to emotions for God and Judaism. There is no fairy tale emotions. It comes to strong meditation and concentration of the two intellects. It becomes real through that, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Then you have the same thing with the emotions. You have the masculine, you have the feminine. Only when you can put those two together do you have constructive deeds and actions. That's the way it happens. So here I'm telling you that man and woman originally were one, simply physically. God created Adam and Adam really was Adam and Eve together. Then God puts Adam to sleep because he's lonely, separates Adam from Eve, and then tells him, here's your wife, and from here on you're going to unite and be married. Interesting that God had to make Adam and Eve as one, separate them so that they can get married. And even after he separates them, he clearly defines that in each one of them exists both the masculine and the feminine. Because each one of them has their complete half-soul, but complete half-soul, that means that each one, it's not that the man's soul only has wisdom and the woman's soul has understanding, but rather the male soul has both the masculine and the feminine, the female soul has both the masculine and the feminine, and that's how they become complete. Why do I share this with you? I share this with you because there's a very interesting statement in Kabbalah. Were I to be, were I to know. Normally we say that sentence when we're talking about God. To know God is to be God. If you don't be God, then how could you know God? I can only know that which is within my reality. To know something that's completely out of my reality is just impossible. By the way, I've actually heard this challenge being proposed to uh, kindergarten kids or preschool kids that they obviously imagination is at its peak and it's at its fullest potential and they ask, it's beautiful, children have an, an infinite amount of imagination and yet the children were challenged, can you create something new? A monster or whatever, give me something new. Interesting enough, the children are only able to create what they already know and reshape it. Give them three eyes. You cannot create a new sense, you as adults. Sit and try to create a new sense. You will see that what you're going to do is reform or take senses that you already know and redefine them. You cannot come up with something new that doesn't exist within you. It's not within our potential. And therefore, to be God is to know God. If you're not God, you cannot know God. And that's why, by the way, in Hasidus, the only reason why we have any understanding of God is because of the soul within us. At some level we are God so we can know God. And that's why the entire study of understanding God is the study of knowing your soul. And from my soul I see God. Coming back to our conversation here. What I am suggesting here is that were Adam and Eve not to have been created as one and then separated, was the male and the female not to have within them each both masculine and feminine, there would be no chance of a male or a female truly loving each other. We need to understand the definition of the word love. The word love, I tell you a story, I know the woman it happened to, she actually published it, so I'll mention her name, she's a very interesting writer. Her name is Ms. Hannah Sharstein. 
she as a single girl was already moving on in age and everyone was getting onto her case, no, 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 you know, I'm sure you all heard this, no, we're waiting for grandchildren, you know, that famous sentence. And what happens is, she walks into the Rebbe for Yechidis and she asks by the Rebbe a blessing. And the Rebbe says, talk to her about her Shidduch. Why are you having a hard time? And she starts telling the Rebbe for what kind of love she's looking for. I heard the story directly from her. We actually, her and my mother are good friends. She said, the Rebbe looked at her and said, you read too many novels. That love isn't real. Period. End of story. So really, and, and uh, another one of my pet peeves, we heard you talk before about education, the Hollywood, really, Hollywood, in my humble opinion, is the responsibility at a very large cause for our divorce rate. Our divorce rate. They create in us a yearning for experiences that just do not exist. End of story. And then we come home and we look at our spouse and we wonder, how come you didn't do for me what Mr. Tom Cruise got paid $4 million to act out doing for her? And it just doesn't exist. It just simply doesn't exist. So if you want to understand the true structure of love, love needs to have to know. What I've just interjected for you is that you cannot to know if you don't to be. Which is why I believe that God didn't make a mistake and correct his mistake. God didn't create first Adam and Eve as one and say, oh, he's feeling lonely, that was a mistake, let's separate them. It's quite obvious that God's original plan was to have Adam and Eve separated and married. But then why did he create them as one? I need to tell you, when I repeat what my teacher told me, I say it as a definite statement. I am just giving you a suggestion at this point. I did not see this written anywhere. What I am suggesting is, because if Adam and Eve were not to be one, they would never be able to know each other, and if they can't know each other, they can't love each other. And therefore it's my understanding that Adam and Eve were created as one, so that when they're separated, Adam could know Eve Eve could know Adam and now there's a chance to love. On top of that, even after they were separated, they both need, till this very day, to have within them both the masculine and the feminine to be able to appreciate each other. And yet I need to tell you, in my notes I put it in bold, so I just want you to know how important this is. The feminine of the masculine is masculine. The masculine of the feminine is feminine. You need to understand that. It's very important to understand that. You cannot believe that because I as a man have a feminine side that I will ever know what you are experiencing. Because the feminine of me is part of me. Believe it or not, I am a man. You, on the other hand, you have a masculine side to you. But you will never, ever be able to appreciate or fully understand what your husband is because even your masculine side is part of you. You are a woman. It is very, very important to understand that. That while God has given us each this amazing gift to be able to be the opposite, and yet, nevertheless, we are not and never will be the opposite. So if you're really ever going to look into your husband's eyes and ask him, when are you ever going to understand me, let me tell you the answer. Never. It's just a fact. We need to be able to appreciate that so that we can be real. Because if you want to have fantasy love and believe he understands you and you understand him, we're wasting each other's time. Let's be real about it. Let's know what's real, let's know what's possible, and let's appreciate the gifts that God really did give us, and not create Hollywood productions and that we can sit and cry. Let's be real about this. You have within you masculine, I have within me feminine, my feminine is ultimately masculine, and your masculine is ultimately, ultimately feminine. I want to tell you how this plays an important role in Judaism. Men and women have different mitzvot and obligations. Plain and simple. Because a man is a man and a woman is a woman. And a woman who thinks she can only connect to God by putting on a talit will never experience how a woman can experience God. And a man that thinks that he has to go ahead and experience 
God by him being the one to push her away and light the Shabbos candles will never experience God as a man meant to be and yet nevertheless there are many mitzvot that apply both to men and women and here I tell you that even those mitzvot that both men and women experience cannot be experienced the same because even then the woman is a woman and the man is a man so what I am presenting to you here is that ultimately speaking the only chance you ever have with your spouse is because way in the beginning Adam and Eve, male and female were one so the to be existed and then when they were separated they can have the to know and even after they were separated at some level even then the man and the woman can look at each other in the sense of to be because God gave the man in his tenth spirit feminine and that God gave the woman in her tenth spirit the, the masculine and yet I tell you in bold italic that remember your masculine is feminine and my feminine is masculine now that we understand that there is a to be so there could be a to know we need to go to the next step in my understanding of chapter 3 of Tanya the structure of a relationship has to be to be to know then you get to to know is to understand then you get to respect trust and love there is a chain of events here someone who loves someone that they don't know they don't respect and they obviously don't trust you don't have love fatuity, lust, we can come up with very nice unpolitically correct words but that's what it is so the to be factor needs to lead into the understand factor the understand factor needs to lead into the respect factor the respect factor leads into the trust factor and then you can experience love I said in my understanding of Tanya because now I need to tell you what Altareba really did say the Altareba in chapter 3 says there's wisdom and there's understanding wisdom understanding is a complete picture you understand the details, the complexity and you understand the inner soul, the simplicity of that complexity because all you people have heard enough Kabbalah lectures to know that the way every creation works at its very neshama it's simple and divine and yet that simple divine neshama needs to express itself into the complexity of it all we don't have human beings, you and I, we are constantly trying to keep ourselves hormonally and chemically balanced because there's so many different factors going on in us that complexity, I don't know if you guys got to read the email or not but the email I sent out before Purim was the reason why we need masks there's a reason for masks the essence of our neshama needs to be able to express itself in the details of our life so you have wisdom the simplicity of it all you have Bina the analytical details which makes it real and tangible for us of it all now you can give birth to emotions if I ask you do you love God and of course which Jew is going to say of course I love God and they ask you when's the last time you thought about God and it's somewhere around high holidays by the way guys it's already March time <laughs> which tells me that the word I love God is immature with all due respect to you and to me the definition of to love is to re I actually have a student that was talking to me about this and I explained to the student the definition of love is really an obsession of thought I think about you so much and that obsession obviously the word obsession is a negative word I don't mean it that way but if you look at the words that the Rambam uses about loving God he calls it cholat ava. the word cholat comes from the word chole what does chole mean? sick to really love is to have such an obsession that I cannot get you out of my mind now most people want it to happen the other way I look at you and I'm so in love with you and I can't stop thinking about you not happening that's why actors get paid 
What really happens is, I think about you. I get to know about you. I find my mind keep on coming back to you. I think about you more and more. That creates love. So it's not love creates thoughts. Thoughts create love. And that's why chapter 3 completely lines up. Intellect are the parents that give birth to the children, which is the emotions. And yet he says there's something interesting. He defines that wisdom and understanding, which is a complete and thorough knowledge of whatever the topic is, in Tanya it's God. He still says that you're not going to experience nothing more, and I quote you the words, Dim you're not shoved. In English that's false fancies. So you have a complete Chachma and Bina, wisdom and understanding of God. You feel like I love God, and the Altarebbe tells you you're fooling yourself. Because in the last six, seven lines of that chapter, he says, without that, the brainstem, these two are not connecting to here. Wisdom and understanding will not connect to the heart without that. So we really need to understand what the word that means. The word that in English is translated as knowledge, but there's a problem with that word. Because when you and I say a person is knowledgeable, what we really mean normally is he has a lot of data. That's not what we mean in Tanya. When Tanya defines the word knowledge, it looks into the five books of Moses to see where the word dot is used. Do you know where the word dot is used first? After God gave Adam Eve and told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, they consummated. The word for consummation in the Torah is the Adam Yada et Chava. That has nothing what to do with knowledge. That has to do with oneness. Practically speaking, how long have you thought about this? People, if we talk plain, simple, psychological language for a second, what's the difference between a dream and a vision? You dream or you have a vision? I would suggest here today the difference is that. That turns a dream into a vision. It's not just because a dream is just general, foggy, cloudy, but really what turns a dream into a vision is when it becomes tangible. You can feel it, you can taste it, it's that real to you. That's consummation. The fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, in a huge discourse that went on for many weeks, he defines the word dat as hakara. The word hakara in simple Hebrew means lahakir. Lahakir is to recognize, but that's not what he means there. He means something deeper into the word recognize. I would define what he means there as the inner experience, as identifying. If you don't have an inner experience, if I just know, then that means nothing to me. Let's just talk simple language. You're married to a wonderful man. If I told you there's a man just like your husband that lives in China, looks like him, talks like him, everything is just like him, you're going to love your husband and not that man. Because that man means nothing to you. You have no inner experience with that person. There is no dot. You have a thorough chokhmah and bina, but it's not your husband. There's a very interesting reason why when we pray to God, we say, Elokeinu velokei avotenu. Our God, God of our forefathers. Because if God is only God of our forefathers, then there is no doubt between God and me, me and God. So there can be no true love between God and me, me and God. The first thing you need to say is, Elokei avotenu. I'm sorry, Elokeinu. Our God. He's my God. When I woke up this morning, who put that soul back into me? My God. And then realize how rich this history of love goes on with God. Elokei avotenu. So really the Altarebbe is writing there in Tanya, when you talk about love, if you just have Chochmah and Bina, wisdom and understanding, but you don't have that, you don't have an identifying moment, you don't have an inner experience, then you cannot love. Which takes me back to the original concept we were talking about. The definition of can I love my spouse, simply speaking it should be no. 
your spouse is an opposite gender so you can never really imagine what they really are and what they really think and what they really experience and then I tell you no God created Adam and Eve as du partufim together God separated them and left within each of them the opposite gender in your ten kochot you have masculine and feminine in the other spouse's ten kochot he has masculine and feminine so not only can you have a wisdom and understanding you can have doubts at some level you can look into your spouse's eyes and actually because at some level you are to be you can have to know and if you have to know which is understanding and understanding on the level of that inner experience identifying a true identifying the way only a mother can tell a child I understand you at that moment you can now build respect trust and love so what I'm suggesting to you here is that the daring brave journey of today's topic do I love my spouse really is the brave and daring journey for the woman to be able to find the masculine side within her from there to be to know your husband and then with all that to know that my masculine is feminine but now I can at least have some love for the husband the brave and daring journey and yes I'm a man and I'm not a feminist but I need to tell you with all due respect it's a little more brave for a man to go there to be able to go to your feminine side and to be able from there to be your wife then to from there know your wife from an inner experience from an identifying moment then you go to respect your wife, to trust your wife, to love your wife. <coughs> Without that brave and daring journey, there is no true love. It just can't exist. Because to be, to know. If there is no to be, there is no to know. If there is no to know, then you're doing at best an abstract research on the opposite gender you can't love them so as to be to know from a dark level hakara inner experience identifying to be there with them then from there that type of knowing wisdom and understanding consummated now we can go to respect trust and love and yet it's important to understand again your masculine is feminine and my feminine is masculine and that's where the trust factor becomes very real the definition of the word do I love my spouse and everything we're talking about here is that we were gifted by God from our origin to our present day soul and psychological infrastructure to be du partufim, masculine and feminine so we do have the to be and it takes a brave person a to be able to go to the opposite gender which is within you and then it takes even a braver person to say and that which I am experiencing is still not what my spouse is because my feminine is masculine even her masculine is feminine but at least we have now a nest to be able to really say when you ask do I love my spouse you now have gone from the essence level yes which is not your work that God gave you from the potential level of performance yes which again is not your work God gave you but now you understand how to take it from the potential performance to the actual tangible feeling of the heart yes I love my spouse practically speaking when I usually give these type of lectures talking about love I usually present a challenge <laughs> I'm going to present the challenge to you 
If you cannot write a two-page essay about why you love your spouse, do not take the right to say, I love my spouse. Two challenge, something I've never myself experienced before. I've told you many times. I thank you very much for these lectures because it gives me an experience that I did not have prior. I'm going to add something on to this challenge, which I've never done before because I've never been here before. Can you go, you women, me a man that's going to my feminine, can you go to the masculine mode within you and from there write about your spouse? Don't write as a feminine how he fulfills my needs. Write as the masculine of the feminine about how he plays that role. You're asking practical. I'll get to it in a moment. <laughs> how you? Okay. I just wanted to finish the challenge now. I need to answer that question. How, how can I? Before I get to the how can I, for a moment just. I'm presenting a challenge. Write a two-page letter. Two-page, not letter. Two-page writing. I actually want to tell you what I tell everyone. Do not, under any circumstances, allow your spouse to see this paper. No, I, I, I'm not joking. By the way, guys, I'm not joking about this. Why? Two reasons. Number one, your writing is going to be different if you think that your spouse is going to see it. Number two, this is your intimate moment with yourself about him, not about him. What happens after you write that is what you'll share with him. This paper gets written and destroyed. Okay? But it's done from your masculine self. It's done. Now, that's what I'm saying. A, can you write that two-page? Number two, I'm challenging myself and you today. Can we go to the opposite gender within us and write it from there? So it'll be a closer appreciation, a truer understanding of each other. You asked me how. I want to tell you, I sent someone an email when I started doing this last night. Ultimately speaking, I've told you again and again and again and again, my feminine is masculine. I can only approach this entire relationship with my own wife with the feminine of the masculine, which is ultimately masculine. I actually last night was sitting there wishing that I could one day hear this lecture from a woman. <laughs> from a woman. I would really like to hear a woman be able to articulate her experience. You've asked me a question which I must tell you I'm going to answer you like a man. You asked me how to find your masculine I can hypothesize, but what I could share with you is try to struggle how I can find my feminine. There is a very interesting halachic definition that defines man and woman. I'm actually writing a bat mitzvah speech for a girl. I'm going to have her bat mitzvah in two weeks, and uh, some people here are going to be there, okay? So you didn't really hear the speech. The suggestion over there was she's between Purim and Pesach, Purim is redemption, Pesach is redemption. From redemption to redemption is what we call this time we're in right now. Interesting enough, redemption of Purim was brought about by who? A woman, Esther. You look into the Gemara, what does the Gemara say? That who brought about Passover? The great Ari, the famous Kabbalist Ari of Tzfat. He says that your souls, by the way, are reincarnations of the women that took us out of Egypt. Because those female souls were able to do it then and we need them to do it now. The question I presented to her was why does redemption have to be through a woman? The answer I gave her, she's about me too girls, so I'm struggling with this. Men have the power of reforming. Women have the power of creation. A man can be a teacher, a woman can create a child. There's a huge difference between forming and creating. A man can bring home bricks, mortar, doors, windows, and build a house. A woman creates a home. 
the difference of the way a man thinks. A man is out to conquer. I once gave a lecture about this, by the way, and I actually gave it twice to a group of women on a woman's day. It was about the bracha shalom asani isha. Why do men say that bracha shalom asani isha? Yeah. And what I actually say over there is that men have to define themselves by what they're not. Women define themselves by what they are. A man needs to conquer to... He needs to spread his borders. He grows by conquering. A woman creates. If you're asking me how I see within me that feminine side, when I want to understand why my wife does things she does, and when I'm not doing it in a frustrated mode, <laughs> that's really what I try to do. I try to ask myself, okay, stop thinking like a Brahmi, who's a man. Think like Rivka, who's a woman, and try to understand how she's experiencing it, and then you'll understand why she's reacting that way, and then you can respect, trust, and love. I don't agree with my wife, but I can respect, trust, and love my wife. I don't need my wife to do things the way I do things, because then I'm two men in the same house. That's not good. <laughs> I want my wife things to do things the way she does things. But the frustration of it all is when I don't understand why, what. You know, when you make a comment that you have in mind a compliment and she shoots it back at you like you insulted her, I actually had that. I knew a certain woman was actually trying to lose weight and I used the opportunity in a respectful way to say, oh wow, Baruch Hashem, why, you should be fat? How do you do that, man? You know, I just gave you a compliment. So that's a frustration between the man and the woman. But if I can use the gift that God gave within me, the feminine side of my ten kochot, and try to understand and try to fathom what it would be to create rather than to conquer and form. What it would be to get your point across without domination but rather from absorption. That's a different perspective for a man. You need to go ahead and sit down and figure out from your masculine side, because I can't do that. I can, I can just tell you that what I did tell you, even that will never be my understanding of my wife because I wrote it in bold and italics. My feminine is masculine. But at some point you can start like, okay, stop thinking like Iveta. Stop thinking like Solomon. How does he, where is that in me? Where is, where is, how do I understand him in me? And then at the end of that to say, and this is only a fathom of what he's experiencing because I'm feminine and he's masculine. From that perspective, you're now understanding, not, remember, it's all about do I love my spouse. Forget the opposite side completely. Now you can say at some level, I can really say I love my spouse. Because at some level, God gave me the gift to be my spouse, so I can really know, understand, on the inner experience, my spouse. Then I can go to respect, trust, and love. And even then realize that this is all with me forever being feminine. And he is completely masculine. What this leads me to is one interesting thing. I'm going to stop here. I want to answer the question. I want to share with you an answer to the question, do I love my spouse? And I'm giving you this answer telling you now, so you don't get upset, that this answer is going to be discussed next month in part B. The answer, do I love my spouse, is that once upon a time I would have told you no. But today, because of this understanding, I realize that there are different definitions to the word love. Therefore, I can tell you yes. What we need to discuss next month is, what is the unique gift of loving and being loved by a spouse? Because long before I met Rivka, I have parents, I have siblings, I have best friends, and that was my interpretation of love. And because I brought that interpretation into my marriage, when you asked me, do I love my wife, I had to say no. Because that arena of marriage is not the arena of that love. If your husband is your father, and that's how you love him, you do not love your spouse. The same thing for a wife. If it's a sibling, if it's a best friend, if you want to be able to do with your wife or your husband what you do with your best friends, if that's your interpretation of love, 
then unless this guy finds a girl who's going to go with him to the beer football party, he's not going to have love. And if he does have that, he doesn't have a spouse. So really what we're talking about here is, the lead up to the next lecture is, now that we understand that there's something very unique, something that only exists in to love my spouse, and that's why I need to be honest with you and tell you, that at one time I had to say no. Because my only definition of love didn't fit into this arena. And I never was, used the word brave and daring enough, to explore this arena without any pre-notions of what I already knew as a fact. is the only definition of love. That's next month. Two pages is the whole order. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.